the good, the bad, the ugly. Welcome to Sustain Nutrition's podcast, Chewing the Fat, where Joe and James will be discussing all things good, bad and ugly regarding training and nutrition. So pull up your pants, put your best foot forward and get ready for some serious oral pleasure. Without further ado, here are your hosts, Joe and James. So we're joined today by Dr. Ashley Lucas, uh, doctor, author, ballet dancer, and dietitian, very impressive credentials. So we're going to talk a little bit about why, I suppose, kind of diets fail or why people struggle with weight loss and the many facets around that. So I don't know, do we call you doctor? Do we call you Ashley? How should we address you? Whatever your preference is, Ashley is fine. So would you like to just kind of introduce yourself, kind of your history, what you do, where people can find you? Yeah, sure. You know, I, um, I spent my youth training as a classical ballet dancer, as you mentioned, and, um, you know, my body didn't physically conform and I didn't have much natural talent. So I pushed myself, um, to do things that my body naturally didn't want to do. And as a result, I um, severely restricted calories. I was told I was fat countless times, despite working so hard and being what I felt so diligent in what I was doing. And so I, um, you know, had many stress fractures and just never was where I needed to be for, for my body. And so, um, you know, I had a pretty decent professional career and danced with, um, companies across the country. Um, but I was just injured all the time. And so I was, uh, at one point chosen to go perform in New York city, which is a big deal for a lot of athletes and a lot of dancers. And instead of finding myself in these major, you know, performances, once in a lifetime experiences, I found myself in the ER and I didn't know what was happening. I thought, you know, I was, I don't know, having a heart attack or had MS or something significant. And after a whole bunch of tests, the neurologist said I was simply underfed and overexercised and that I just couldn't continue doing what I was doing. And so I, I missed out on not only these once in a lifetime experiences, but I was so fearful of my health future. I had no idea what was going on. I was flown home alone and um, was really depressed and felt like, you know, it was my identity. It was might not sound like a big deal, but it was 20 plus years of struggle and sacrifice, just like any, um, strong athlete. It's just everything that I did. And so I, I had to leave the field of ballet, the field of dancing and retire before a lot of people would have said that I really made it. So I, I had to sit with myself and it was a really tough period of time in my life um, where I just felt like a failure and, and couldn't get my body to do what it needed to do. And so I just really had to figure out what my next step was. And I understood how significantly nutrition or lack thereof really impacted my own sport performance. So I decided to go on and earn my PhD in sports nutrition and chronic disease. And so that's, I I went to Virginia tech here in, in Virginia and studied exactly that, you know, how do we achieve the body composition that we need without severely depressing our metabolism? How do we drop weight in a sustainable fashion and not just ruin ourselves in the process? 
And then I think most importantly, what do we need to do mentally and emotionally through habit and behavior to create sustainable change? And so that's what I really focused on when I was earning my PhD and then went on and taught at the Ohio State University and understood there that I'm not a very patient person and I have to see dramatic change in people to be satisfied. And so I went back to school again and became a registered dietitian because I wanted to be this true expert, what I thought would be this true expert in the field of weight management. But there was an issue there because everything that I learned was still just the same conventional wisdom of move more, eat less, eat everything in moderation. You need to have more willpower. When I knew I had more willpower and discipline than most people, and it still didn't work for me. I still was struggling with too much body fat for my sport or on the opposite end, being totally injured because I was not eating enough and shutting down my metabolism. So I just flipped everything that I learned there upside down and took all of the research through my my doctorate work and created what we now implement, which is the PhD approach. And, you know, I'm fitter and leaner than I ever was. And I eat much more and move much less. And, you know, I, I started working initially with a lot of athletes and found what had a significant impact on their sport performance and allowed them to achieve their optimal body composition in a healthy way had a more profound impact on those of us struggling with excess weight. And so, you know, I, I started our company, PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition, and folks can find us, you know, online at myphdweightloss.com. And we have about five brick and mortar locations across the country. Um, but we also have a really sophisticated um, at home nationwide and actually now global program where we can help people wherever they are drop weight in a sustainable fashion where it's not about more willpower and calories in and out. It's just so oversimplified, isn't it? Like eat less, move more. And again, it's something that we find clients saying a lot. Um, but, you know, in the comparison we always give, that's kind of like saying to someone who struggles with alcohol, just stop drinking. Or exactly. someone who has anxiety, you know, just don't worry about it. It's let's look at why, you know, you're gaining the weight and the, you know, the weight gain is a side effect of whatever the root cause is. So it's figuring out those root causes and that often comes down to mindset. So from your opinion, why do you think people struggle with weight loss? Mm -hmm. I think there are many reasons, but one is just, as you said, I, I believe that we're in the field of addiction recovery. I don't even look at it as weight loss. And so when we look at that perspective, you can't just expect yourself to eat everything in moderation, just like we talked about. And so we've been inundated with this message that we should be able to do that, or that it's not okay to say no to certain foods, or that we should be able to eat whatever, whenever we want. And unfortunately, we're just not wired that way. We're all different. You know, my trigger food uh, might be ice cream and, and yours could be you know, chips and salsa, whatever it might be, we have to be big enough and aware enough that it's a form of self-respect to say no to certain foods that, you know, I, I always say it's about breaking the ties with the foods you say you love that don't love you back. And so I think that's one reason, just all the messages that we've been given. We've also been told, you know, that it's our fault. And I think there's a lot of shame and guilt associated with weight when I really believe that the weight gain doesn't have much to do with us or our personality. And 
So one of the reasons why um, I see this is because of metabolically what's happening in the body. And I can explain that. It's a little bit of a long story. Is that okay? Yeah, go for it. So I find what happens is we have these um, triggers in our life that change the way that we tolerate our food. And the trigger is different for each unique person. So um, for one woman, it might be her third pregnancy. It just was like a uh, switch flipped and things were totally different. Before with the two pregnancies, she could get back down to her optimal weight and it was easy to let go of the weight. But after this third baby, oh my gosh, no matter what she does, the body is just not responding in the same way. You know, for a man, it could be some big uh, job change, some big stressor, and they eat the same way they did in the past, but now it results in weight gain. For some people who have struggled with their weight for their entire lives, their trigger was birth, just meaning genetically, they have a predisposition to store this fat really efficiently. Their body just really is good at it. And so whatever that is, over time, we start to accumulate this fat. And when we accumulate it in the belly, we know this is called visceral fat. This fat tissue is different than the fat throughout the rest of the body, right? It's like a gel. It fills up the organs. Um, You know, if you're carrying fat in the belly, I want you to picture your liver. If we took a slice of it, it would look like a ribeye beefsteak with that marbling in and around. And so over time, we develop um, this visceral fat, this deep belly fat, it grows its own blood vessels, it gets a little oxygen supply, and it starts to secrete hormones. So this fat mass, I want you to imagine has a mind of its own, it has its own agenda. And all it wants to do is get fatter as fast as possible. And so all the hormones that these fat cells are secreting are there to encourage its continued growth. It's like a tumor. It works in the same way. And all it wants to do is grow. And so when you carry this belly fat, it makes you, you crave, and there's no willpower in the world. That's going to overcome those cravings. It makes your metabolism pretty slow. So you can look at, you know, a a pizza and, and beer and gain five pounds. It makes you lazy because the last thing this hungry fat mass wants to do is have you go expend a ton of energy. And it makes you really hungry. And so when we carry around this fat mass, it's just putting our body in this fat storage state. We take in our nutrition and it pummels in to feed the fat first. And so nutritionally, we're we're starved and we're craving more and we're hungry. And so metabolically, we have this going on. And then from the mental and emotional component, we have this addiction recovery place. And then we have this culture and the society that tells us we should be able to eat whatever we want, whenever we want it, even if it really doesn't serve us. So I think it's, you know, multifactorial there as to why we're struggling. I think the intuitive eating kind of movement is, is, is a great idea, but I was actually just speaking to a lady this uh, this morning who commented on one of our posts saying that she'd uh, really struggled with disordered eating and, you know, she was now on meal replacement shakes and that's how she was coping with it. And then someone had commented and said, oh, you should try intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, like you said, like intuitive eating is a great concept, but if someone's got disordered eating, if they've got a poor relationship with food, if they use, you know, food as an emotional crutch all the time, intuitive eating is probably what's brought them to, you know, that place where they're at right now. So it needs to be, you know, something different and just picking up kind of hearing what you're saying about like when you said like you know people love foods but they don't love them back and joe's got a, a good one for when people say that i love food you want to chip in with that joe which bit do you mean do you mean saying that love is reserved for people mm. places and experiences rather than and it's the irony of 
food labeling Cadbury's Pots of Joy. It's a, a, a yogurt that we have over here that if you could put yogurt, if you could put joy into a pot, you know, would it be something that was mass produced and sold for 25p and made people ill? Of course not. It's sadly the things that, that people fall into and they use the language that then encourages this behavior. Yeah. yeah it, and, and people will conform to that idea. Uh, and, you know, the great example is when people label themselves as greedy. I'm greedy. And then you kind of give yourself permission to behave in a certain way when it's not actually true. But because those are the thoughts and the stories that you're telling yourself, that's what people kind of conform to. So why do you feel that people, yo-yo diet, or why do, yeah, why do you feel that people struggle with yo-yo dieting and this kind of like, you know, Len Norton famously says, doesn't he, you know, we don't have a weight loss problem, we have a weight maintenance problem. And any diet will be effective. Yeah, will be effective as long as it puts you in the deficit. Uh-huh. But it doesn't stay off for many people. So, you know, have you got any thoughts on that? Sure. So let's look, if we first look at metabolically what's happening, if we look at this visceral fat, this hungry fat mass I was talking about, and we really understand that it's secreting hormones at the tissue, at the cell level. And let's say we only drop a portion of our excess fat weight. We say, you know, let's say there's 80 pounds or 60 pounds of this excess fat weight on the body, and we only drop half of it. And I find the biggest reason for weight loss failure is saying, I look and feel good enough. And so we drop half of it, but we don't get the body really where it needs to be. Well, there's still half of this hungry fat mass secreting the same hormones. And we haven't made enough of a metabolic shift to truly get the body where it needs to be. So when we're dropping weight, we really got to get the body back to its optimal place where it no longer has this hungry fat mass that has demands and desires working against it. So that's part one metabolically. And then part two is just understanding that this is a lifestyle change. We can't get locked into a story of deprivation um, or obsession or shame. So understanding that this is, you know, we're fueling our body in a certain way and that it's not going to stop once we get into maintenance. We can't take our foot off of the gas pedal and go back to the old habits and behaviors that got us there in the first place. And I also think that there's a special mindset required for maintenance. And if it's to maintain a weight loss, that's going to lead to destruction. I really believe that in maintenance, we have to still have a growth mindset of what's next. You know, how are we going to grow? How are we going to up level and elevate from this place? Because a maintenance mindset is, is not going to allow for long-term success. When you, when you talk about the metabolic adaptation, is there a linear drop? So would you see, and I, I wonder if this is where it ties into the sustainability piece, that if people lose weight with it in, in a sustainable pattern, they'll then see that hormone drop incrementally? Or is how, how does that work? Am I, am I making sense? Yes. Yeah. The closer we get to our optimal weight, the less risk of total weight regain we will have. So, you know, if, if you have 60 pounds to drop and you only drop 20, then you're going to be at a a 95% risk of it coming back. But if you get within five to 10 pounds of where the body truly needs to be, then you're going to have a better chance of maintaining it, especially if you've gone about dropping weight in a healthy way. And by that, I mean, not severely restricting calories, you know, not um, eating everything fat-free, low fat, 
And you've got to make sure that when you're dropping weight, you, you really look at the mental and emotional component. We know 80% of any change comes from the mind. And so many times when we drop weight, we're just looking at the food and the food is actually the smallest component of it. Yeah, that that's the easiest bit. You it know, is. You could say like yeah. you could send someone to a, like a prison camp. Well, I suppose the biggest loser is a great example, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you take people completely out of their environment, you put them in a false environment where all they have to think about is waking up and exercising for whatever it was, six hours a day. The food is supplied. They don't have to go to work. They don't have their siblings or their partners or you know workmates or anything nagging them or upsetting them, it's a complete false environment, they lose a ton of weight, you put them back in the real world, and whatever it was, 99% of them bounce back because they've not learned any different coping strategies. They've simply been stuck on a massively restrictive diet, right. or calorie-restricted diet with a massive you know, um, you know, calorie burn per day, and then you put them back in the real world, and because they've not changed anything about their attitude towards food or their coping mechanisms, and they have a massive bounce back. So where do you start? To you, if you take on a new client, where do you start? What's the, the first thing you do with them? Yeah. So the first thing is understanding their story, where they've been, their struggles with weight gain and weight loss, if they've experienced the yo-yo phenomenon and what their personal goals are. You know, what is the why? We we don't work with just everybody. And the reason why is because this is really an addiction recovery process. And when we look at that, we have to make sure that each client we work with is in a place where they're ready for a massive transformation and change. So we always ask our clients, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how ready are you commit? Because it only works if you work it. We will make it happen, but you've got to come in and bring your A game and just be open, radically open-minded and ready because we also have a different perception of, you know, what the, the best foods are when you're dropping weight. You know, we remove the, the junk and the sugars and some specific foods that are going to induce hunger and craving. So being open to just um, making a, a big change. And that's the first step. We also take a look at where the body is, right? How much of this hungry fat mass do we have? So we will look at body composition. We never look at BMI. I think BMI is a bogus indicator for health. We really want to know how much body fat each individual is carrying and where it's located, how much visceral fat. So that helps us to determine the length of the program. You know, most of our men drop about three to four pounds a week. Most of our women about two to three. And so that's what determines the length of our program. It's customized to each individual. So then we get the length of the weekly weight loss phase. And for us, we create a specific meal plan for each of our clients, guiding them on what and when to eat. And we make it very simple and it tastes good. And there should be no withdrawal symptoms there. It should feel really, really good. And so that's what we're doing every week is we have weekly one-on-one -on -one coaching with our clients to talk about the nutrition aspect of it and really debunk the myths that are out there, but to also look at the mental and emotional habits, behavior is a lot of cognitive behavioral work because you really do, like you said, have to change your story to be able to change your life. And so if we see those sabotaging thoughts come up, we'll help error correct. 
If we don't see weight dropping down, we'll figure out if it's something nutritionally related or if it's really coming from the mind. I find that 98% of weight loss plateaus are actually coming from the mind and not nutrition or metabolically related at all. So every week with our clients, we're looking at that. And then we also do provide the majority of food for our clients and there's no cost associated with the food. It's just a helpful tool. Sometimes doing food all on our own can be overwhelming for some people. It works really well, but for others, we need it to be like little baby steps. So for us, the dinner meal is always on our own and we help guide in every aspect, lots of recipes. And then we grab, and, and so our foods can help with lunch and breakfast and snacks if you need it. And then we let go of those gradually. So there's never any dependence, but we've actually been able to make baby steps that have landed in overall transformation. And then once our clients really get where they need to be, we fully collapse this active hungry fat mass our clients enter into maintenance and we call, call it maintenance recovery. And so our clients have connections with us um, either weekly or monthly, and we never abandon them understanding that it's a process. And for us, we see that it takes about a year of maintenance support for these habits and behaviors to become ingrained and in just our new natural state. So that could be an aspect too. You know, we expect to make change and think that it's just going to last, but man, you you have to keep working it, you know, once you're in maintenance, nothing really changes. I think we think I'll be happy when, or it will work when I get to maintenance, but it still takes work, you know, just for us to maintain where we need to be. We're working. If you're building muscle, you're not going to continue to build or even maintain muscle if you don't go to the gym and lift weights and overload. So maintaining a weight loss is, is similar, you know? You said something interesting earlier about, you know, maintenance is, is regression. And so you always want progress, words to that effect. So what are the, the component parts of that then when you, you look at that maintenance phase? How do you ensure that people are still progressing on some level while they're maintaining their progress? Yeah, we have to have um, new goals, new new sets of focus. So for so long during the weight loss phase, it's okay, I'm dropping this weight, I'm getting to this number, this is my goal. So we have to establish new things like that. So maybe after we get, you know, body fat down where it needs to be within a healthy range, a goal would be of increasing muscle mass, it's hard to do both at the same time, the hardest thing is to drop significant body fat and increase increase muscle. <laughs> uh, that's difficult to do. So for a lot of our clients, it might be okay, after I achieve this, then I'm going to focus on just becoming ripped or whatever that means to that person, or I'm going to try to go and, and do this new workout that I've never been able to do. Or it depends on the unique person. You have a client last week I chatted with, and she's a photographer and she has dropped a hundred pounds with us. And I asked her, you know, what was something she couldn't go take photos of or go do you know, where she was a hundred pounds heavier. And so that was for her going to Alaska. And so she scheduled a trip and is going to Alaska and will just continue to do that. What else could she have not done? What is she going to do to take her photography to the next level now that she's in this body that can support her? 
Um, for other people, it's giving service back to others that they weren't able to do. It might be getting a new job because they have now the confidence level. Um, it could be, you know, um, going out on dates because the confidence level was so low that so it's just going to the beach and wearing a specific swimsuit and then establishing that next goal after it. Uh, we have so many people um, who are a part of our team who were clients before. And so how to give back, how to just immerse yourself. So looking at the maintenance mindset that you were talking about then, Ashley, where would you start with, with your clients then? We talked about, there you go, I remembered. We talked about setting different goals and progressing them. You mentioned about the, the lady in Alaska and, and moving, moving the goalposts of people from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with our clients, how, we just start with that on, on having a discussion and then also understanding that maintenance recovery weigh-ins is very important. And so having connection with someone and continuing to have support. I think we have such support during the weight loss phase of whatever we're doing. And then awareness and attention just goes away. And we move into different avenues, but the awareness and the attention when we're maintaining a weight loss has to be just as high, has to be just as significant. And sometimes those sabotaging thoughts, I'm sure you guys experience these come back so strongly in maintenance. If we pop up a little bit, you know, we'll um, hear, gosh, I need to drop some weight before I go back in and and have a check-in or you know, there's shame or guilt associated with a little bit of weight gain, but there shouldn't be, you know, we're going to oscillate, but having the support so that your support system can error correct early on when it is five, 10, 12 pounds that you put back on, that's no problem. You know, for some people, a little regain or all of it has to happen. It's a part of the learning process, but with more awareness and more practice, then the severity and the frequency of these regains diminishes. Yeah, the, the, the point about the guilt is, is, is so prevalent. And I think that the idea that even if people are, are really struggling or not doing very well, they're doing the best that they can in that given moment with those skill sets. Right. And then to, to, to act with kindness and compassion. Is that where you'd primarily be using the CBT? What would be the, what would be the other tools that you'd use with people when they're struggling with with things like that. Yeah, we do use CBT in that way. We also have um, audio behavior modification audios that we implement and they work with binaural beats and they help to retrain the neural pathways in the brain. So those are a really neat step. So support CBT, the, the audios, um, you know, a, a lot of people of our clients seek outside additional support from a, a coach or therapist or psychologist because dropping weight brings up a lot of things. I really believe that dropping weight is a process of letting go, a process of letting go of this excess fat weight, but also all of the emotions that are tied to it. And I find that they have to, we have to let go of both of these simultaneously. And for some people, if they drop the weight, but they don't let go of the emotions that are tied to it, then the weight's not going to stay where it is. And they're going to rebound. You know, if we, we drop weight through, I don't know, HCG or hormonal injections, and we haven't done any of the mental and emotional work, then that's going to be unsustainable. It's also going to be unsustainable because we haven't created any habit behavior shifts and have shut down our metabolism with the severe 
calorie restriction, but that's why it's so important that if you want to see sustainable weight loss, you do it in the right way. Yeah, a lot of it's about changing your identity. And I was kind of nodding away when you talk about the support and the accountability, because it is something that we see because it's still that kind of diet. I'm going on a diet and it's a fixed period. It's 28 days, it's 60 days, it's 97 days or whatever it is. And then when that's done, then I'm done. And whether I've reached my goal or not, I can go off on my own. And, you know, sadly, we've seen it, you know, multiple times where you said, you know, clients will go away. They'll stop doing what gave them success. They'll go back to what they were doing before. They'll regain the weight. And then they'll be, I suppose, ashamed or feel some kind of guilt that they've rebounded. And, you know, sometimes it'll take them a year and then they'll just come back to and say, look, you know, I'm actually heavier than I was when I first started with you. We need right. to start this process again. But then when you can get those people and then, like you said, they stay on and they do, instead of doing three months, they do six months or nine months or 12 months. And then, you know, they've got the skills and the abilities and the mindset, you know, they've changed their identity. You're yeah. not conforming to those old beliefs. You know, those are the people that are successful, but people just feel, feel that 90 days, that's all I need. That's kind of industry standard, 90 day diet, three months. And I'm good. It's like, it just depends, doesn't it? Because if you struggle for 20 years, then we're not going to do 90 days. You know, maybe let's start thinking about two years, you know, like I said, some level of coaching, support, accountability, because, yeah, it's just that it's massive, isn't it? It's just you can't fix these huge lifelong issues in such a short amount of time. No, no, it just, just like anything, even with our, our mindset and, and, keeping it positive during times of uncertainty and such. It just is a constant daily practice. And so, yeah, we've had these struggles since we were really young or whatever, 15, 20 years, it's going to take quite a bit of time to uh, rebalance. And I think creating a new identity is one of the top keys into creating success and I always suggest for our clients that they set that new identity right at the beginning and they live as if they're already there. You know, what is the ultimate goal? What are they working toward? And then that is who you are right now, not after you've dropped 30, 60, 100 plus pounds. Um, create that identity and move within alignment with it now. And so if you were that person, um, let's say it's fit, lean, vibrant, sexy, whatever that is, how would you be acting right now? Would What would you have in your cupboards? What would you have in your fridge? Um, how would you move throughout the day? So I think also we, we wait, we say, we'll do that when, and we can't wait. We have to have that identity as if it is now and act within alignment. Did you find then that your experience, you said you went from, from being a dancer and almost having that identity shut off for you how do you do you use that as, as, as a way to help people you know was there, is there crossover there did it take you long to then find your to find your calling I suppose or to, to where you're at now was there something in the middle did you try something else first and then move to health yeah, and that's a great question I mean I use my experience was um, met with such struggle and shame and not feeling like I was good enough that I definitely implement that into everything that we do within PhD. So it definitely has been um, an impact there. And it did take me time to figure out, um, you know, 
a, a new identity for sure. And I did not have any idea what that identity was to <laughs> try to implement and act within alignment. It took me many years to figure out what that was. Um, but yeah, my, my experiences are though, um, are perfect for me because they've taught me how to help others and hopefully allow others to just not feel unworthiness and shame as they're um, moving and making changes and, and figuring out really who they are and who they want to be. I think it's very difficult for a lot of people because they, they only know what they don't want. I suppose with dancing, you only knew that you didn't want to be injured and you wanted to be healthier. Right. It's, it's a progression point from that, isn't it? And it I'm, is. sure, I'm sure you've had people before, or I know we have, who can't even visualize where they want to get to. And so that That's, is it. If you can't visualize it, you're never going to be able to put the actions in place to, to get there. Yeah. So then with that, we, we just do small baby steps. So, and that happens a lot. Let's say you have uh, 80 pounds to drop and you, you think, oh my gosh, that is never, I was never there. Or I was there when I was in high school, then we break it down. And we're like, okay, what is that weight that you can imagine? Because you're right. If you can't visualize it, it's not really going to happen. It's just like an athlete visualizing, uh, let's say a downhill skier. They, they're up at the top of the run, visualizing a perfect run. So I will meet with many clients who will say, you know, gosh, I just can't, I'm stuck. My weight will not drop below 165. Well, one of the reasons why is because of the language they're using. If they say it will not drop below 165, then it will not drop below that number. We won't ever see that happen. So we have to change that language and then we have to help them visualize. So I will usually ask, okay, can you visualize yourself at 145? And the answer might be no. Well, how about 155? Can you picture that? Maybe that's a no. So we keep working to see what is possible. What can they visualize? And it might just be five pounds down. And if we can open the door to that, if they can picture with all their senses, who they're with, what they're wearing, what it smells like, what it feels like, then the next week they won't shift their nutrition, but they will come in and they will have dropped five pounds. I, I'll tell you, it happens so many times. So being able to visualize that and really create that that five pound down of the new identity, then then that works. Yeah, and it, it's a huge thing that we do. Is you know, I can't talk about faking it until you can make it. You yeah. know, so it's it is. It's looking at like, what's your goal? What does that person look like? What do they feel like? What are they wearing? Where did they go? What can they do? So very similar to what you said to the photographer. Um, because again, you can use that where you talk about push pull goals and, you know, if you dropped that hundred pounds, like your client, you don't want to go back to that place because now you've got all this freedom where you can go to Alaska and you can do all these things. So these can be very motivating, but yeah, it's looking at where do you want to get to? What does that person do? They start acting like that. Now I'm not saying you're, well, my goal person runs whatever, 20 miles per week. You know, maybe don't start off trying to run 20 miles per week but maybe run three and then we'll start right. build up, you know, like you said, like the baby steps, but you've got to start embedding that because if that person that you want to be gets up and goes to the gym four times a week, if you keep on doing that, whether you want to do it or not, sooner or later, you're going to become that person who gets up 
four times a week and goes to the gym because that becomes an action that you do, you know, and that's why, you know, going back to what you said about the CBT, that's why we really enjoy using it because people have these stories and these beliefs, you know, going back to even saying people are greedy, that they believe so much that they identify with that their choices and behaviors conform with us. But when you ask them, you know, is this really true? Well, actually, it's not. Like, have you got any evidence to prove that that's true, that you are greedy or you can't do this or you can't get below, you know, uh, 165? Like, you got any evidence of that? Like, no. I'm sorry, I was just speaking to a client earlier saying that she's like, I'm struggling because I, I don't feel I can lose any more weight. I'm like, you know, extreme example, if I didn't feed you for a month, would you lose weight? Yes, you would. So physically, we know we can. There's a mental block that's going on. You know, it really echoes kind of what you were saying. So, yeah, it's breaking down what's stopping you. It's very rarely a nutrition thing. It's very rarely a knowledge piece. It's what's what else is going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and over time, creating these new habits and behaviors so that they are familiar. We don't like to do things that are unfamiliar, that are uncomfortable. And so one important aspect of creating this new identity is realizing how much time it takes to make something familiar. So if, for example, what's familiar to you is hitting the snooze button every morning that's what the brain is going to go to. The brain doesn't like things that are unfamiliar. So then what do we need to do to make not hitting the snooze button something that is really familiar that the brain goes to? And it's just practice and consistency, awareness, and time. It just takes time. Yeah. And I'm looking for shortcuts. So it's a perfect example. I had a client who always did that, really struggled to get out of bed. And she wanted her, her goal was to get out of the bed, to go and exercise. I can't remember if she was going to the gym or not. And she's like, what I do is I put on the snooze or I just turn my alarm off and I go back to sleep. I was like, okay, put it to the other side of the room. So you physically have to get out of bed to turn off your alarm. And something as simple as that can work because then you're all out of bed. If you've got your phone by your side or your alarm clock or whatever, it's very easy to put a snooze. If you've got it out in the hallway and it's going off, then you're going to get up. And it's, you know, for us, it's about making things as easy as possible. Yeah. Very much like you do with your clients. It's kind of, you know, if you give them their food, the food is there. They don't have to make a decision. They don't have to go out and try and find something when they're hungry or, you know, it's already there. It's very easy to make that decision. So it's, you know, again, for us with our clients, it's searching for what's the easiest way possible of you achieving your goals, of you eating in a way that you want to. So, yeah, I mean, if you could give one golden nugget of advice to people who are out there who may be struggling with weight loss or yo-yo dieting, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, really, it's the the creating the new identity right off the bat, I'd say, from a mental and emotional standpoint, that is a, a huge golden nugget. And then if we really look at the nutrition component, I would say thinking about breakfast. So um, a lot of us eat a really carby, dense breakfast, um, whatever that might be. And we know that, you know, not that carbs are bad. They're not, they have their purpose for sure, but they have the most profound effect on how we metabolize all other nutrients. So if we eat a really carb dense breakfast, then we're going to knock ourselves out of fat burn and probably have more cravings and hunger for more of those type of foods throughout the day. So thinking about breakfast and making it more kind of protein, healthy fat based, or even if you're not a hungry person for breakfast, not feeling pressured to need to eat anything. It's okay if 
if you're not hungry, breakfast really, uh, when we look at the research, isn't necessarily the most important meal of the day. Kellogg, you know, claimed that to sell more of their cereals. Yeah, massively. That's what we said to people, because again, you know, come from people who kind of have like kind of toast or they'll have cereal for breakfast. And then we kind of advocate much more higher kind of protein diets because of the effect on blood sugars and cravings right. throughout the day and everything else that you kind of mentioned. And people are like, I just don't know what to have breakfast. Like people were eating breakfast before cereal was invented. <laughs> they were. You know, that was crazy about a meal that was going ahead. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's brilliant. There's some really valuable information there. So thank you very much, Ashley, for joining us. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, have to get you back on so just quickly again where can people find find you or find more information yeah the best place is to check out our website at myphdweightloss.com and we're also on social media i am directly um, dr dr underscore ashley lucas or um, at phd weight loss on instagram and facebook Brilliant. Thank you again for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thanks so much. I loved it.